On this episode of the Fellowship Podcast, we dive into the final installment of a continuing conversation I have been having with Dr. Kip Lines, the Executive Director of CMF International. We walk through the journey of his family's transition back to the U.S. after eight years of ministry with the Turkana people of Kenya. Kip is going to share some cringeworthy stories, lessons learned from his brothers and sisters among the Turkana, and the ways he has tried to implement those lessons here in the U.S., and the challenge it is to apply the same type of missiological practices that he used among the Turkana in Kenya right back here with the people and places he has come into contact with in the last couple of years in the United States. I'm your host, Jake Moore. Welcome to The Fellowship. Welcome to the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International. I'm your host, Jake Moore, and I am joined on this episode by Dr. Kip Lines, the Executive Director of CMF. Welcome back to the podcast, Kip. Thanks, Jake. It's great to be here. Man, I'm excited to have you on, and I'm excited particularly because this has been a bit of a saga, but we've been working through your personal story. Uh, Ah. You you guys have been through a number of changes, maybe even more changes than a lot of our other missionaries in that you served on the mission field. You were, not only did you get your doctorate, you were a professor, and now you're the executive director of CMF. And so I want to focus in not as much on the mission field aspect, but on your transition back to the States. So does that sound like a, a good deal for today? It does. Yeah. I'm just worried the more you talk about all of these additional things that I've done or transitions, you're just saying that I'm older than other people. But yeah, go we're, ahead. Saying, go ahead. We're, say, we're saying you're super old and crusty <laughs> is what we're trying to get at. This is my my not so subtle diss on okay. you and your yeah, great. right great. now. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. No, I'd love to well, finish up the story. Cool, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, so you served in Kenya for eight years with the Turkana up in the northwest corner of Kenya. Your ministry was focused on church planning. Your last term was really focused on the Turkana Bible Training Institute, Mm -hmm. this leadership development uh, aspect of the ministry going on with the Turkana. sounded like a phenomenal ministry. If folks haven't don't know anything about this, they need to go back to episode one and episode two of the Fellowship Podcast. They can get more information on that. But I thought as we as we hear more about your story, a few fun questions uh, to maybe help us segue to being in Kenya and then transitioning to the States would just be to ask, what would be, is there like a, a cultural moment? I know you shared about the camel, buying the camel during your <laughs> language year, but is there like yeah. a cultural moment that you, you reflect back on that you're still like, oh man, I can't believe that happened. And like you, you find yourself laughing out loud still about something that happened uh, during your days Gosh. in Kenya. Yeah. Thanks for bringing the camel up again, Jake. I appreciate <laughs> that. Actually, since that went mm-hmm. out, uh, I've heard a lot of comments about the camel, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it makes me laugh out loud. And it's, sometimes it's kind of a cringe too, but uh, mm-hmm. to, to think about um, there's one particular day, I think back to a bunch where, uh, you know, as a, as a, CMF missionary living out in a remote village area. Maybe we've talked about this before. There's a lot of emphasis placed on your value 
as a person who owns a vehicle and drives a vehicle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so driving mm -hmm. people around all the time mm -hmm. is something that we do. Uh, and I, you know, if I, I just remember one day where I was so fed up with people asking for rides, people like piling stuff into the truck and I'm trying to get somewhere and I'm just trying to get home. And I was so fed up with people in the vehicle. I was like, okay, that's enough. Everybody get out of the truck. <laughs> Everybody just get out. Like, we've got to figure this out. Who can ride? Who can't ride? Mm. Uh, and everybody got out. Uh, and then I just drove off. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what? This is awful. Yeah. Uh, it's awful. And it, um, and uh, from that, <laughs> from that day, I can't just leave that story right there, can I? No, you need to. That's, <laughs> that's it. End of episode. That's Thanks it. for listening. That's it. That's, uh, that's, that is actually my terrible missionary story that I've told <laughs> lots of mission classes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and then get uh, usually have an opportunity to spend time unpacking that story a little bit mm -hmm. about uh, the different ways that we deal with culture stress, uh, the ways that um, the expectations that people have of you, you're viewing those expectations through your own cultural lens and they're yeah. viewing those expectations through their cultural lens. Uh, for many of the people that were in the vehicle with me that day, like they were going to walk where they were going anyway. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if they could get a ride part of the way. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, they what they were more upset about than anything after that day, like having to walk somewhere. They didn't care. They were upset that I displayed anger mm -hmm. uh, in front of them, which was pretty rare for me to do uh, yeah. in that setting. Uh, and uh, and so the the relational repairs that I had to make that made sense in that cultural context uh, was related to my display of anger in front mm -hmm. of them. Uh, what I found out later for many of them, it would have been better if I had just told a story about how like there's this gauge on the front of my truck. And, you know, when it goes past this point, that means that the vehicle is overloaded. <laughs> and so some people have to get out like, like that, that's perfectly mm -hmm. fine. But to actually be fed up, to lose your cool, to kick everyone out and just drive off like that was terrible. So that one still makes uh, me laugh out loud. It makes me cringe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I had like months and months of relational repairs to make after that. And we learn a lot from yeah. those, those times. From moments like that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's really hilarious. Yeah. That is laugh out loud worthy and also definitely cringe worthy. Right plenty of those on my own that I'm not going to share. Um, <laughs> oh, come on, Jake. It's I'll, confession time. It's know, good I'll for let, the soul. We're just focusing on you in this particular Okay, episode. good, 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 good. Um, what's so interesting about that, though, is for them to say, like, you should have created a little white lie sure. about, about your car because none yeah. of us know what a car does other than carry people around. So right. you could have lied to us and that would have been better. Uh, the one thing I'll say about Ethiopian culture as a whole, but particularly uh, with the people group that we worked with, the Gumus people, and I know the Oromo people, they they never come outright and say something. It's very rare. Usually it's a side ask. It's mm. using an idiomatic saying to suggest something. So that kind of falls yeah. in line in some ways with what you're saying. <laughs> it would have been better to have made up a little lie yeah. about it than to come right out and say, you guys are yeah. driving me nuts. Get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and what I had to learn was it's absolutely fine to say no to people, mm. but the way that you say no is important. And and whereas in maybe in some of our 
cultural concept. Although I would argue that we have little white lie things that we do all the time that oh, are yeah. completely honest. Um, but, uh, you know, it just, it made more sense to make up a story uh, that allowed you to say no in a way that was more, uh, it saves face for the folks mm -hmm. in the situation. It doesn't make them look bad at all. Yeah. Uh, and uh, those relational bonds and the way people look um, in front of other people uh, and their character uh, is is much more important than just the brutal truth uh, that we often yeah. try to just get to quickly in our mm -hmm. American context. So yeah, well that leads into my next question about cultural norms, mm. things maybe you had to leave behind back in the United States or tried to get rid of in order to function in Kenya and to function with your Takana. I mean, this definitely sounds like a piece of it. It, were there some other cultural norms just to do ministry with the Turkana that you had to get rid of or say this works in the United States. I've got to quit doing this here when it comes to ministry. Right. Uh, I'm not certain if we talked about this previously, but in teaching at the Bible training Institute, I would often get questions about, well, how does the American church do this? Mm. Uh, and I, I would often try to give the best answer that I could by saying, well, if you want to know how American churches do this, actually American churches do this in a lot of different ways. And I, I didn't want um, folks to just do things the way that we did them in America, just because someone from America said, hey, this is how we do it. So you should do it that way. But more culturally, um, you know, I, I think about the relational aspects. So mm. what I just talked about um, that, you often won't come out and say exactly what you want to say, uh, but you talk around it for a while and it takes mm -hmm. more time and you take the time to visit with people and um, you, you kind of have to throw your watch away. Um, it's mm. the way I felt when I first arrived in Turkana. <laughs> um, I might have a plan for 10 or 12 or 15 things I want to get done and I've got them scheduled out. But uh, if I'm walking from my home to a place where I'm trying to get something done in the village, or I'm trying to meet with a specific person. If I meet someone on the way, uh, I need to stop and talk to them mm -hmm. and take time to talk to them. And that person at the place that I'm trying to get to, uh, that Turkana person understands if I'm late, whatever late is, right. um, you know, from our perspective, we're late. If I'm supposed to be there at two o'clock and it's, it's three, by the time mm -hmm. I get there, but that was fine. And in fact, when I get there, having a discussion about the people that I met on the way right. and the conversations that we had was an important part of that relationship mm -hmm. uh, within the culture. And so that cultural norm that we hold on to so much in the West of being at something on time uh, and, and, you know, it, I had to deal with this a lot on a college campus when I was a professor. You walk across campus from your office to a classroom. Sorry, class starts in three minutes. I got to be at the right. classroom. Someone comes up and wants to talk. I can't talk. I got to be at this thing. Can't talk. Got to yeah. be at this thing. That's so. That's such a Western thing right. that you know. I've got to be at that thing. Um, and you know, we've got it set up. Those students have paid for that class. They've paid by mm -hmm. the minute. The second that class starts is when it starts. The second it's yeah. done is when it's done. Um, and, but in, in the village villages where we lived, it was completely different. Uh, what mm. was important were all those relationships 
you would stop even if you had an important appointment uh, to talk to people. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's just one example. But yeah, no, that's that was a, a, that was a that's a big one. A big one. Yeah, that's massive, and that's a great example. Definitely something that you had to get rid of. As a North American working in Turkana, yeah. probably working throughout East Africa and maybe on the continent as a whole, but particularly with Turkana, I can imagine that would be. A yeah, and I, I think definitely in village life. I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize it. In in cities right. and towns, uh, even in Turkana, people are much more tied to their clocks and to their appointments. But in the village, that's not the way things are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's. What about the converse of that? You mentioned university students and having to bounce bounce to the next class, whatever you couldn't talk to folks if you had mm -hmm. a three minute window, because that would turn into a 30 minute conversation. Sure. What were, what were though some cultural norms that you learned and maybe gleaned from your life with the Turkana that you have carried with you back to the United States? Well, definitely even tied to that one is I'm much more willing to stop and talk to somebody uh, now. Um, I also definitely ask anybody that works with me at the office. I definitely push the boundaries of um, things starting on time or uh, <laughs> uh, being being there uh, exactly when something is supposed to start. Uh, I, uh, I I don't know. I think I think I brought back some more of that fluidity than I ever had before I went. Yeah. Um, where if I'm working on something and it's really important, it doesn't make sense to just stop it because something is scheduled. Uh, but also, you know, if, if there's a conversation that I'm having with someone, the, you know, yeah. the schedule isn't as important, but I've had to, you know, obviously you can't operate that way sure. uh, here in Indianapolis in an office setting uh, mm -hmm. and be efficient and, and be respected by other people. <laughs> 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 but it, so yeah. But so now in your mind, is it more like just a constant reminder that hey, it's okay to pause at times. It's okay to have this conversation. Yeah, like to try to find maybe more of a balance between the efficiency piece and the relational piece. Yeah, right. Finding a balance, and I think I think what happens to those of us that spend significant amount of time, maybe on both sides of a cultural divide on some of these norms uh, is that what we've we've learned to embrace the best parts of some of those norms from each culture mm -hmm. and so we 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 end up living with that tension uh, mm -hmm. all the time but I think we we maybe spend a little more time working through that balance um, recognizing when it is absolutely important of course to be on time for something and uh, right. and the value of that but also recognizing that the next task that I'm trying to accomplish is not more important than the people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, yeah, definitely that, that brings a new perspective once you've lived in it for a while. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, as you guys were trying to discern the transition back, what, what were some of the things that fed into that um, in your decision to leave? Obviously you're not still in Turkana. So yeah. as you guys was it a, what, were you aware of that going into your second term? Was it something that became really apparent in your last year on the field? What were, what were some of the thoughts behind uh, your transition back to the United States? Yeah, it, it became apparent. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the timing and then some of the reasons. So it became more apparent uh, about the middle of our second term. And uh, uh, one of the things that we did is we, 
we once we came to a realization that it wasn't really best for us to to come back um, to Turkana after that second term, uh, we let our team know about a year in advance mm-hmm. um, before we even left for like that final furlough time and visiting with our partners um, so that everybody knew and we could actually work toward that at the end. And I, that was a really valuable thing um, for us and for the team uh, to try to work through uh, the things that we were engaged in and how some of those things were going to keep going or what things needed to end and, and how we would uh, support some of those ongoing works. Yeah. But uh, some of the, the things that happened, I, there was definitely, I mean, as, as in any situation, there's multiple factors involved in, uh, in these sorts of transitions and decisions that you make. Um, for us, you know, a key factor was our children. Um, that was definitely one of the factors. Uh, second key factor was uh, Katie uh, and her ministry um, ability or limitations even sure. in the place where we were ministering. Uh, and then a third key factor uh, was recognizing uh, where the church was actually at in a healthy spot in Turkana and not wanting to um, be in a position where we were causing the church to not grow uh, by being there, causing them to be dependent on us. It was never our intention, even when we started out as missionaries, to go somewhere and stay there for a very long time, to to Mm -hmm. think that we were there um, to be in that one place or in one village even for 20 or 30 years was not Mm -hmm what we had thought about philosophically the way we thought about mission was that we would, we would engage in this, this ministry in such a way uh, that people are being trained and uh, can do the things that we do. Uh, The the phrase that we use often is work ourselves out of a job sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And so uh, we wanted uh, to leave the church in a good place where they could continue on in the ministry and we wouldn't be there too long. So I'll talk through each of those real quick. The first one, uh, our children, uh, we lived in in a situation where uh, ongoing education for our two boys would have probably meant boarding school. Mm-hmm. Uh, boarding school is a very difficult decision for folks who, yeah. who live and minister in the places where that's an option or uh, one of the only options. So it was either boarding school or homeschooling um, and as we looked at the boarding school option for us, uh, it just didn't seem like a great fit. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's fascinating when you talk to folks whose children have gone to boarding schools or you talk to people, you talk to the children who went to boarding schools after they grow up mm-hmm. and you will get people who say it was the best experience ever and it was great and they wouldn't trade it for anything. And you get people who say, man, that, that really was difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't do that again sort of thing. Sure. And so you, you get these Quite conflicting varied. pieces of advice and stories from people. And it's like, well, I don't know what we're going to do, mm-hmm. uh, but we, we worked through it, um, talked to people, visited and, and had decided uh, that for our family boarding school, wasn't going to be an option and, and ongoing homeschooling. Once you start getting into like junior high, uh, that, that kind of age, right. it's like, um, the much of the burden of the homeschooling um, just because of the way our ministry was set up in Turkana fell to Katie. And right. uh, so that, 
goes into the second factor where we both went to the field believing and thinking that we were both going to serve fully as missionaries in ministry in ways that, uh, um, that we had planned and studied and learned uh, to do. Um, but uh, really there were a lot of limitations in that culture on what Katie was able to do ministry wise. And so uh, she um, uh, felt a need to be able to engage more in ministry and less in just being a mom and a homeschooler and that sort of thing. Um, so, so that was one of the other factors. So yeah. education for our boys, Katie wanting more opportunities for full-time ministry than she really had uh, mm-hmm. in the context we were in. And then that third factor was uh, not wanting the church to become overly dependent right. on the roles that we had and handing things over to local leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that, that was all part of it. Is yeah. It? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's multifaceted. It generally mm-hmm. is for folks whenever they go. Now, when you guys came back in that first year to two, I'd love for you to explain a little bit about what that looked like for you to, to coming back to this, the United States, realizing you're not headed to Kenya. This wasn't a typical furlough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a terminal furlough. What were some of the decision factors behind going into the doctoral studies? And then even just how did you guys navigate that time? Uh, yeah. Furlough, sabbatical, Sure. There's, you know, people throw around reverse culture shock. Did you guys hmm. experience that ever? And especially when it becomes your terminal furlough, realizing, okay, I'm here to stay. Uh, did you guys have that in waves, acute moments? I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Wow. There's so much to talk about there. Gosh. Um, <laughs> and I, I do want to just say one other time, because I, I, I would hope that other people would hear it and would follow this example of some of the ways that we did this. Um, we, we, before we left the field knew that we were not coming back. And so we, we were able to work through with the local church, what that would look like. We were able to work through with our team, what that would look like before we went, when we came back on furlough, uh, we, we let our churches know that we were transitioning, Mm -hmm. uh, at the very beginning. It wasn't Um, a sneak attack on everybody. No, it wasn't a sneak attack. And well, I don't know if I would call it a sneak attack, but you know what I see some people do occasionally is try to maybe hide the fact. I don't know if folks feel guilty about it, or they are, or um, I I don't know. I don't. I don't completely understand. There's again multiple reasons, Uh, but I think it's very helpful for your partners and for your for your uh, team and the ministry, the folks that you're engaged in ministry with and partnering with for them to know in advance, these things so that you can go through transitions in healthy ways with them. Absolutely. So that I'll just leave that there. Um, but coming back for us, um, uh, you know, we had a couple of times when we came back and we were given the opportunity to be a missionary in residence at, at Milligan college and at yeah. Emmanuel uh, and those were great things uh, and a great way for us to transition where we had a place to stay, we had things to do, and we could continue to talk about the work that we were engaged mm-hmm. in with folks and, and do you know some, some recruiting just by yeah. building relationships with students and folks um, mm-hmm. in the area. So uh, as we knew that our time was ending with CMF, uh, started to look at, at what was next. Um, we had you know, multiple interviews for things. Katie 
wanted to engage more in full-time ministry. And then I uh, had looked at a couple options. So actually interviewed for a, a, um, a missions pastor position at a church. Uh, And then also um, uh, I uh, was applying to go to uh, into a doctoral program. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I ended up with, a decision between working at a church or uh, going into the doctoral program. Um, and that was, I, I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. It was, that was also sure. a difficult time where we had to, we had to pray through it and talk with lots of friends and, and mentors mm-hmm. and try to figure out what was, what was best and what was next. Uh, I really loved my time of teaching in Turkana. Mm-hmm. And so was, was thrilled about the idea of um, continuing on in academics and be able to um, teach folks who could potentially do the sorts of things that we did uh, when yeah. we served in Turkana. I mean, and it's how, kind of like how people do it even better than me. Right. Yeah. So you're trying to guide future missionaries, but then also it's kind of one part missionary in residence. It sounds right. like. Yeah. yeah. So some of your experience on your your furloughs where you're on missionary in residence at Milligan, I could see where that would play yeah. out. You say, yeah. Oh, I love to teach. This is a way to interact with college students kind of yeah. hone and shape the future uh, of, of missions and maybe the future of CMF. Yeah. And, and I would also say with my graduate work at Emmanuel and Katie's work with uh, folks like uh, Dr. Norris and Dr. Tabor, uh, we were given this really strong foundation to, to really think through the work that we were engaged in and why we were doing it and how we were doing it and um, how does the, the theological understandings of scripture and the history of the church influence the way that we engage in ministry. And, and so I already had a great foundation in thinking theologically, missiologically, really, yeah, uh, about the work that we were we were doing, and so the doctoral program provided me an opportunity to do that full time for a couple of years, mm-hmm. um, and to really explore what it was we were engaged in, and kind of where where missions is headed. What is missions even all about, uh, mm-hmm. and and how do we think about that in good ways uh, as we live in a different time? Yeah, and many of the mission books that we read in undergrad or grad school were written. So anyway, we're going to talk about that some other time, aren't we? We're going to talk about some of the missiology stuff. Yeah, we're planning on doing an episode on missiology for sure. And we're going to do that. But where did you do all these studies? What school were you at? Oh, uh, you mean starting undergrad? I went no, to no, Milligan. No. Yeah, uh, yeah. Milligan College. No, I mean, where did you do your doctoral work when you got back? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to Asbury Theological Seminary, yeah. um, just outside of Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah. How long was that process of working on your doctorate? How long were you guys there? Uh, we were there for, for uh, four years. So um, I was in, uh, I think I was in full-time coursework for three years for that program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, and then I had a year, uh, that I engaged in research and writing. Um, and then during that time, I was also doing some teaching as a, as a graduate assistant and, mm-hmm. um, uh, doing some, some work for the professors there so I could get some, some good experience. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Get experience in the classroom. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, uh, maybe just real quick, what's, what's this, your dissertation on? What was it on? <laughs> just real quick. 
You got 30 <laughs> seconds. Nutshell. What is it? Yeah. Well, I'll give you, so I'll, yeah, uh, the nutshell is I was intrigued by the reading of intestines in Turkana. Hmm. Not and the Twinkies. Not, not, the, the, not just the Twinkies, but in <laughs> Turkana, there's a traditional form of um, interpretation of what's going on in the world hmm. that some of the men engage in through the reading of intestines. And so what I, what I looked at was what are, what are the ways that uh, Turkana traditionally view the world and interpret it uh, mm. And trying to get a glimpse of that through the different divination methods that uh, their traditional um, uh, nimorok, which are kind of like diviners, or maybe someone would say a shaman, uh, mm. uh, like you would have in Asia. Uh, what are the ways that they use to interpret what's going on in the world around them and answer the questions around them? Mm. Um, one of the challenge so that this is multifaceted again one of the challenges in the church in Turkana that i saw ongoing yeah. was a, a constant fighting against the traditional culture um, looking at everything in the traditional culture as negative mm -hmm. or even demonic or satanic and that's very very common in a in an early church movement where christianity has never existed Christianity comes in and there's a strong reaction and some people would say a, a necessary strong reaction to the culture in order to set yourself apart as a follower of Jesus. But that strong reaction to the culture doesn't help the church in the long run. It might work for the first generation or two of Christians, but really you have to do a much more careful work at looking at the culture over time to recognize that your Christian faith is lived out in that culture and you can't just escape it and say that you're not part of it. And so if Christians could better understand what these uh, traditional religious specialists were doing and why they were doing it and understand the questions that people were bringing to get answers for, then maybe the church could help people in that context more effectively uh, mm -hmm. than they had. So I really wanted to help the church uh, by doing that study um, but I also wanted to do things like, what does it mean to study scripture and interpret mm. scripture in ways that make sense to Turkana folks oh, that's fascinating. in the traditional culture? So can you, can you read the intestines of the scripture mm -hmm. uh, in order to understand what God's saying in that time and that place? And that's a, that's a question that I continue to ask. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. So that was, that was what my dissertation was about. Yeah. And People can put, pick up your dissertation, right? It's it's available in book form, right? It is. I have to pick it up to actually look and see what the title is. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> who, who do the Nimorok say that they are? It looks like this, this nice orange cover. Yeah, orange cover. Who do the, the Nimorok say? That they are, it, yeah. And and are. the author's yeah. name is Kev, this guy named Kevin Lines. Mm -hmm. which, Kevin Lines, Dr. Yeah, Kevin yeah. Lines. And you can you find out. Find my academic writing, you have to look for Kevin Lines. And it's yeah. on it's on uh, Amazon, right? Yeah, it's an it's an Amazon. I've got an author page on Amazon under the name Sweet. of Kevin Lyons, and you can if you just type in Kevin Lyons Turkana T U R K A N A in in Amazon, you'll you'll pull up all kinds of stuff. That's awesome, man! You're there like you you're like on the uh, you're like number million and one on the bestseller list, right? Is that what you told me once? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was fun to watch it drop after it came out. Uh, <laughs> But it is in the it's in the American Society of Missiology series, 
Uh, this is not volume 35. So it wasn't like I just went out and right. You know, found somebody with a garage and had my book printed. Just, yeah. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's all really fascinating, really interesting. And I love that you were able to tie in your life and ministry into your doctoral work. Um, and then obviously then your doctoral work influenced the move for yeah. your, for you to, uh, hope international university and even now to your work with CMF. Yeah. Um, in those four years that you were in Lexington, did you guys experience the reverse culture shock piece at all? Was that yeah. something that came to you at acute moments or was it just kind of waves of t throughout the time that you were there? What did that look like? As a yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think the abundance of, things and things that are available to people was completely shocking to us at first coming back. And uh, I mean, anytime we came back to the States and went to a grocery store, it was like, what in the world? There's so many choices. How do I even know which kind of toothpaste to pick? Like, this is crazy. <laughs> There's a whole aisle just for pet food. Like, what yeah. is that? Like, uh, yeah. So that the, just the abundance, uh, I had to do some work on, just not feeling negative about people because they had stuff. Uh, hmm. um, and, uh, and I had a, I had a really wise neighbor that we moved into a neighborhood in Lexington close to the church where Katie worked. And one day I was just kind of lamenting like, Oh man, like I really loved living where we lived in Turkana because there was this, you know, there was this culture to explore and understand hmm. that was very different. And there were lots of, there was lots of things for me to learn. And I found it fascinating. And my neighbor was like, well, we've got culture here that you don't understand too. So Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I had to take some time to reorient myself to the fact that, Hey, there, there's just as much interesting things happening here in mm -hmm. people's lives and in their families and their stories and take the time to listen to their stories here mm -hmm. and learn to speak the language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. applying all of those missiological practices right back here in the United States is extremely important, especially for you guys. You also got to relocate to some different locations than mm -hmm. where you grew up. So you were in Kentucky for a little while, and then you had the opportunity to be a professor at Hope International University. Yeah, I know that could be a long discussion of things, but I'd love to hear, I guess, what classes you taught and maybe what was your favorite thing to do with uh, your students at home? <laughs> uh, well, I had I, I got to teach lots of great classes, um, mostly upper level classes because I was I was their missions person, intercultural mm -hmm. studies professor. So intercultural studies covered things like world religions, intercultural <laughs> communication. It covered um, uh, anything related to ministry that wasn't in the normal church setting. So I would teach an urban ministry class, uh, a missions history class, uh, language learning. I taught a, a language acquisition class and wow, kind of like cool. intro to linguistics. Um, so all, all kinds of fun stuff like that. I, and I mm -hmm. taught their uh, anthropology, uh, cultural anthropology courses. And, and so I think, I think the best part for me was to be able to take a group of students, you know, students who have just come out of, of high school who have lived mostly in the same place their whole life and just open up their eyes to this world of mm -hmm. other ways of thinking and seeing the world 
and recognizing that God was working through all of that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there's so much, so much to learn um, uh, about what, how big God was and, and God's work in the world uh, through all of these different cultural values and norms and understandings. So it was yeah. a lot of fun. I, I think uh, I had a, a section of my anthropology class on food taboos and disgust. Uh, and I think one of my favorite things is I would bring in uh, a durian fruit. I would buy a durian fruit at an Asian market and we would cut that open outside the classroom (laughs) someday uh, and kind of, I forced everybody to taste a little bit of it. Mm. That was also a class I I would make them eat insects and try it all out. Uh, Um, and then I would have my, liked you as a professor, yeah. I think. I would have in my religion you. classes, I really liked taking people to go visit. So I built relationships with folks at a mosque and at a Hindu temple and at a, a Buddhist temple. And uh, we we would go as a class and go visit uh, during worship times to be able to learn um, the way other people view the world in worship. So those I think those experiential things were, were great for to open up the eyes of students. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun to walk, especially North American students through. Uh, that'd be a yeah. fun thing for sure. You would have loved my classes, Jake. Oh yeah. Yeah. I like to eat weird stuff. So you wouldn't have liked all the assignments and all the reading. <laughs> no, that would not have been cool. Well, how many years did you serve as a professor? Uh, I taught there for five years. Five uh, years. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At what point then, as we come to the close of our time, at what point did CMF come back on the radar for you uh, in this opportunity to serve as the executive director? Yeah. CMF. Well, if you know this guy, David Giles, mm-hmm. um, I, I, he's pretty uh, methodical in staying connected to people in a good way. And so uh, we came back, uh, left Turkana, left CMF. And I think it was probably every six months he would give me a call and say, hey, you ready to go back to the field yet? You ready to go back to the field? Like, <laughs> we could really use you uh, on the field. Like, mm. uh, and so I kept having communications from David, and then uh, the teams, uh, David and some others, would invite me to come uh, and do retreats with missionaries. So I was able to do that a number of times for CMF folks. Um, there was a you know a couple times where. Uh, I was able to help out with some, maybe even some tension between missionaries and church leaders and that sort of thing Mm. uh, and helping to be a bridge for folks. And so I've stayed connected. I stayed connected with CMF during that time. Um, And then um, uh, when I found out when, well, I heard from Doug Priest, the former executive director, Mm -hmm that he was planning on retiring. Um, he let me know that, uh, I was one of the folks that, uh, was on a list of people that the board was going to consider. And he just asked me if I was even interested. Uh, mm-hmm. and that was a couple years before, uh, that he even retired. And I said, yeah, I think I would be interested in that role. I definitely want to know more, more about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, uh, when it came much closer for him to retire, uh, I was contacted by the board and asked if I would go through uh, a process to see if I was a right fit for the role. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is when they contacted me, you know, I had just received word that I 
was being made a full professor at the university, which, um, you know, it was kind of like, well, actually now I'm a, I'm a professor at a university and I've reached this level where I basically have this job. <laughs> yeah. For the rest <laughs> of your life. I want it. And mm -hmm. I'm, did I mention I was in Southern California? Like <laughs> the weather's pretty nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I wasn't right. certain when the board approached me then I wasn't certain how interested I really was in making a transition. I'd done so much work uh, on the academic side of things to get to where I was at uh, a lot of really hard work to get there. Um, and I loved, I loved what I was doing, but Katie and I prayed about it and agreed to go through that process, the interview, different types of interviews and different types of assessments. Uh, and through that time, uh, came to a realization that that the the executive director role at CMF uh, was actually I was actually a good fit for for that role for a lot of Absolutely. a lot of different reasons and you know they they wanted somebody who had the field experience obviously and understood what that was like uh, but they really were looking for somebody that had a had a foot in the in the academic and research world that can stay connected to kind of what the, what the trends are and what people are thinking and writing and saying, and even participate in those things. Um, and, uh, and then also we've had lots of connections with churches all across the country. You know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, Katie grew up in Colorado and we've lived in Tennessee and Georgia and mm -hmm. we've lived together in Colorado and Kentucky and Tennessee and California. Uh, and now in Indiana. <laughs> so all there's just a, lot, a lot of connections with people around the country too, that, that were yeah. valuable, but all of these experiences that I've had, you know, I've been thinking for many years, this is pointing to me being a professor at a university. And then I realized that even that experience was something that was shaping me for, for this, uh, this role that was, uh, available for me to serve in. Um, well, that's cool. Yeah. man. Well, I really appreciate you sharing and I'm super grateful that you are the executive director of CMF. We are going to record another episode talking about missiology and missiological trends, trends okay. and missions in general, ah, and trends, trends about the future of missions uh, and for CMF specifically. And I'm excited about that. But all of the discussion that we've been having about your own personal story really leads into that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people being able to hear more about who you are, where you served, and where you've come from, um, and really that you are always seeking to learn more about the world around you, whether that's in Turkana or Lexington, Kentucky, mm -hmm. uh, I think is a real tribute to your leadership. Uh, so grateful for this time, Kip, and I uh, look forward to doing more episodes with you in the future. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, man. God bless. Yep. I was so encouraged and challenged by this conversation with Kip. There were two big takeaways from this time that I wanted to put out there as a reminder and challenge to you all as well as to me. First, that lesson that Kip learned from his Turkana friends and the whole truck incident. Kip said he learned it's okay to say no to people, but it's the way you say no that, it's, that is important. That story reminds me of a Maya Angelou quote, that people will often not remember what you said or what you did, but the way that you made them feel. So my first challenge out there to you is about self-awareness. Are you aware of the ways that you make others feel in your presence? And then the second was that reminder from his neighbor in Kentucky. 
He challenged Kip to seek out and to explore the cultures around him. And that would be my question back to you. What are the cultures to explore around you? Where do you see God working in the stories of the people around you? Are you applying that missiological practice of language learning to learn the language of the people around you, whether they be a neighbor, your own family, or your supporters? What can you learn about them and what God is doing in their lives and in your community? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International. Now, get out there and connect with what God is doing in the world around you. 